0: I want to ask you a question. Have you ever had uh, an encounter with like a celebrity or like a, a leader in the community or somebody that you really admired that because they were a person of significance, it made you feel like a person of significance? Maybe you went to some of your friends who were like, hey, guess who I ran into? Or maybe check out this picture that I have with this person. You actually act like you know them when you really ran into them for like three seconds. You know what I'm talking about? When, when I was growing up, this was kind of part and parcel uh, for a part of my life. So some of you uh, might not know this, but my dad, he used to play um, major league baseball. So he played eight, nine years uh, in the major leagues uh, and about 17 years of pro ball total. I think we have a slide of that. Eric, can you go over to that slide for me? So there's him uh, back in the day. He's got a solid mullet and, and the stash working there, uh, but but... That was a a good portion of the early part of my life. So as I'm growing up, me and my mom would travel to where my dad was playing ball, and and we would just hang out there. And then as I got older, obviously, that got less and less frequent as I began in school. But, But what would happen is, you know, I'd get to go on these huge major league fields, and I would get to go into the clubhouse with all these professional ball players, and I'd get to go out into the field and, and, and try and catch batting practice, right, as you have these balls coming at you at like seven years old at like 200 miles an hour, right? It's a little unnerving, but it was a meaningful experience. And it's something that I look back on that actually gave my life value as, as I look at the connection that I had to it. The reason I tell you this is because we look at the scriptures this morning, what we're going to see is that these Jewish individuals that Jesus is interacting with are trying to gain value by their association with somebody in their family line. Last week, we saw that Jesus was in Jerusalem for what we call uh, Sukkot, or uh, tabernacles, as most of us know it. It was one of the three feasts where they would travel uh, to the city of Jerusalem to worship the Lord at the temple, and Jesus ruffled some feathers. Because one of the ceremonies that happened during tabernacles is they would light this giant lampstand, right? And it would be the sign of this messianic kingdom. And what Jesus does during that lampstand ceremony is he stands up in the crowd and he says, I am the light of the world. He is the one who is claiming to be the beacon who would lead God's people out of darkness into where he would have them be. And so what happens is the religious leaders, the Pharisees here in Judea, the, the, the Bible sometime, our, Bible, our Bible sometimes translate them as uh, the Jews, but it's, it's usually probably better translated as the Judeans, because if you notice, Jesus usually gets into these conflicts when he shows up in Jerusalem. So he engages with these Judeans, the Pharisees, and what happens is they question the validity of his witness. They say, who are you to be saying that you're the light of the world? What credibility, what credit do you have to talk on your own behalf? And Jesus pushes back and says, no, 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 no. It's not just me who's validating myself. It's actually the Father. And this would be a very typical Jewish way of talking about God. So what he's saying is God is affirming me. But not only that, he says that I'm actually sent by him. And when I speak, it's as if he is speaking to you. But then he does something that shocks them. He tells them that it's not only him who's being sent by the Father who speaks on behalf of the Father. He begins to claim a prerogative that only God has. And he makes himself the hinge upon which forgiveness of sin is available. What he says literally is, is, you will seek me, and you will not find me, and you will die in your sin, for unless you believe that I am he, we'll come back to this I am language shortly, you will die in your sins. And so clearly, they're not happy with him, and yet the end of the text, look at chapter 8, verse 30, here's what it says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So the text ends by saying, yes, these rejected him, but there's a group that actually believed upon him this dichotomy exists all throughout John that there's a group that accepts Jesus and there's a group that rejects Jesus now if i was jesus and i say these things and there's a group of people that come to me and say yeah i i i, I want to follow you i believe in your message i'm for you if i was him i don't feel like i would question it right like i would be like yes i got some people on my team all these people are not a fan of me over here but i got at least a few of you on my team, I would feel good about that. I don't think I would question their claim, but that's not Jesus. That's never Jesus. He says, not so fast. Because what he sees is despite their appearances, despite the fact that they claim to believe in him, they haven't actually fully entrusted themselves to him. And so what does he do is he starts peeling back these layers he starts to question their loyalty to him. And what he finds is they're actually more loyal to somebody in their family line than they actually are to God himself. Because they deem their, this value, they, they, they believe that they have some merit or comfort that is based upon their association with their ancient descendant, Abraham. And what, God, and what Jesus points out is that they don't have faith like Abraham who entrusted himself fully to what God had for him. In fact, they are severely compromised. As we begin in our text this morning, I I just want to ask you this question. What do you claim connection to or what do you associate with in your life that that gives you value, that gives you worth in your life? Is it a relationship? Maybe a a boyfriend or a girlfriend or or a spouse that, that gives you a significant piece of value? Maybe your, your kids. I know many of us deem a, a sense of value from our kids. Do you, do you gain a sense of value from maybe an achievement that you had, that when you're thinking about, is my life actually worth it? If I actually accomplished anything? You say, okay, I can at least look back at that good thing that happened, that, that achievement that I was a part of. Do you have something that you achieve that gives you value? Or maybe is it uh, a, a uh, an object, a possession, or some some sort of intangible? Maybe a a house, a car, a job. Like, wh- what is it that actually gives you value? What is it that because you're connected with it makes you feel significant? Because Jesus challenges us on that this morning. He doesn't say that those associations are bad. He doesn't say that those connections are are worthless. In fact, he would never say that to be associated as the children of Abraham, as we're going to look at, is worthless. But what Jesus presses into is that those things are incapable of changing our hearts. Those things can't transform us into the people that God desires us to be, and they cannot fundamentally satisfy us and fix the broken human condition, which he's going to press into this morning. Let's start in verses Uh, 31 through 38 this morning, and here's what we see. We're going to see that spiritual bondage is a, a normal part of the broken condition, okay? Start in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, remember, a group said they believed in him. Here's what he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So this is classic Jesus, right? They say they affirm him. And he says, not so fast, and he presses pretty intently into this idea of discipleship, that discipleship to him is far more than an affirmation. It is far more than this outward connection, this association that we make with him, but it is a a commitment, it is a wholehearted acceptance of the message of Jesus. And what's significant is not how far he pushes them into commitment towards him, what is significant is what he says. He says, if you hold to my message then that message will set you free. I want to pause at that. I want to pause at that for a minute, and I just want to ask, do we actually believe that? Do we believe that what Jesus says, and by extension, what God's Word says, is actually meant to free us, to liberate us, to cause us to flourish? You see, the Bible talks about freedom in a way that's uh, far different than we often do kind of in our cultural moment, because the way that the Bible talks about it, it is kind of in contrast to this idea of autonomy. Oftentimes in our cultural moment, we think of freedom as complete autonomy to do whatever I want, and yet that's foreign to the scriptures, because what the scriptures seem to affirm is that when we actually have that autonomy, what do we do? We enslave ourselves to our sins and to our passions, and so what the scriptures say is that true freedom is moving from rulership from one master, being our sin, being, a, as, as Jesus will get into, Satan, into our own brokenness, into uh, having God as our master. So there's the shift. It's not about who is leading you, or it's not about having no leader. It's about which one is the better leader. Right, Jesus presses into this on the Sermon on the Mount, right, when he says that we can't have two masters. We, we either have to serve God or money, but it goes further than that. We either have to serve God or our sin. We either have to serve God or who he will get into here in the text, Satan himself. It's some pretty significant language. So the question is, do we believe that God's word is here to free us? That his commands are not meant to bind us more and lessen what we can do, but they're actually meant to help us to walk in the life that God has intended for us, the life that we were designed to live into. So he says that the truth will set you free, and here's the response from the Jewish individuals who are talking to him. They say, we have never been slaves. What are you talking about that you're going to set us free? We are children of Abraham. That is the place where we take solace. And what they say is actually technically true. Right? In the, the social hierarchy of Rome in the ancient world, they probably were not slaves. There were a lot of slaves, but clearly they were not them. Right? So they say, we're not slaves. What are you talking about, uh, us being set free? But they're only kind of telling the truth. Because Jesus says, no, you, you are in slavery. It's maybe just not the slavery that you think of. And he identifies it by this fact, that they keep sinning. That they have this inability to stop rebelling against God. And he says that that is the definition of bondage. That is actually the definition of slavery, that they do not have control over their own lives, that they do not have control of whether they're going to be completely obedient to God or not. And this is kind of part and parcel for, for Israel's history, for the, for the Jewish people, that, that even from the very beginning, there was a, this sin, that, this rebellion against God that characterized them. We think about Mount Sinai, right? They get the law from God. What's the next thing that happened? We're gonna build a golden calf and worship it, right? This is just this constant pattern that exists in their history that they seem to have overlooked. And so Jesus gives them this analogy. He says, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. See, in the ancient world, slaves were a part of the household, but they weren't actually a part of the family. And so because of that, they didn't have security. They were technically still property. And so they could be sold, they could be traded, they could be kind of let go of, right, as they got too old to work. Maybe they were set free because they were uh, just too much to, to actually help the family along. But what Jesus says is if they are truly going to have a change in their status, If they're going to have the security of being a part of this family that they claim to be a part of, then someone from in the family has to designate that status. And Jesus says that he is that one. It is the son who has to set them free. And so Jesus recognizes in them, I know that you are offspring of Abraham. He recognizes that, yes, on one level, they're from Abraham's line. But he says in the way that they are acting, they're not really demonstrating that their devotion is anything like his. In fact, Jesus says that their devotion shows that they belong to a different forefather, to a different father. He says, I speak of what I've seen from my father, and you do from what you have heard from your father. But I think it's interesting that they think that they're so free. I, I I think it's really intriguing that they want to wear Abraham's badge and claim freedom, but in doing that, they've forgot the story of Abraham. Because the story of Abraham actually starts with God telling him, you're going to go into Egypt and be slaves, and then I'm going to set you free, right? And then all throughout the history of Israel, whether it be under Persia, whether it be under Babylon, whether it be under Greece, there's been very few times, actually, in their history as a people where they haven't been ruled by another nation. Actually, their story and their identity, even today the Jewish people, is built in some sense on this understanding that they have been oppressed and that God has been the one who has been setting them free. So it's very strange that they really are, are kind of relishing in this idea that we're a free people because if they knew their history well, if they were more interested in being truthful instead of just pushing back on Jesus, then they would never say that. And what Jesus says is that the story of oppression reveals something about their identity, not just externally, in the sense that they've been oppressed by other nations and by other rulers, but that they're actually oppressed from the inside out. That they have this pattern on a a heart level where they cannot stop doing foolish things, where they cannot stop rebelling against the Lord. In God's grace, yes, do they sometimes do good things? Certainly. In, In God's grace, Everybody does good things at certain times, but Jesus says, what is the pattern? And they show a real lack of awareness. Now, just as they have a story that they lacked awareness about, but they had nonetheless, and it shaped who they are, right, that they are connected to Abraham, we do too. We have a story that informs our life. Maybe some of us have many stories. Some of them might be good stories that we look back on where something good happened to us or we were able to achieve something And those are okay. And we should look back at God's faithfulness in those moments. But some of us have really tragic stories. Things have happened to us or we've done things that that we regret. Maybe you tried to strive and you failed. Maybe your family history is less than perfect. Maybe your parents or your grandparents, the dynamic there is just not what you wish it was. Jesus presses into this story And what he says here is that a significant part of all of our stories, theirs and ours here, is is that there's this pattern of rejection of God's invitation to a life of flourishing. That no matter how good on the surface things look, we have this addiction. This addiction where we would oftentimes rather define good and evil for ourselves than let God define how we should be living. And so we're, we're like them. We have to come to grips with that. And we have to say, okay, what do I do about that? And Jesus is going to point us to himself. But these people are still stuck in this Abraham is our father language. Keep keep looking here with me. Look at verse 39 to 47. 39 to 47, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So we move from Jesus talking about spiritual bondage, initiating this conversation about fathers, to them being kind of that it being revealed to them that their thinking and their actions actually have this satanic source, because they restate their connection to Abraham and they even double down on it. They say, actually, it's not Abraham who's ultimately our father, it's actually God who is our father. And this is true. Exodus 4.22, where, where, where God says to Moses uh, that he's supposed to go to Pharaoh and tell him that, that Israel is my firstborn son, right? So the source, the originator of the nation of Israel was indeed God himself, but Jesus is saying that the source of what's going on in them right now is not from God. He says that they can say whatever they want, but they need to look at what's happening. I I think we need to hear the frustration in Jesus' voice over this. When he says, why don't you understand what I'm saying to you? Why can't you hear me? Right? And he says, it's because you cannot bear to hear my word. He points out that they are deaf to the truth. And it's not only causing them to reject what Jesus is saying with his mouth, but they want to kill him. And he says, that is not Abrahamic, guys. That is not one that marks a child of Abraham, nor is it one that marks a child of God. He says that is satanic, and he says that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. He's pointing back to when when Satan deceived Eve, and then Adam ate the fruit, and what happened, death was introduced into the world, that in effect, Satan introduced murder into humanity, and now Jesus is saying, you're acting just like him because you want to murder me. And you cannot hear me because you are swimming in his lies, and you're acting just like him. And the result is it's not just that you want to kill me, but the result of your actions is it's going to kill you. I was trying to think of an illustration of what it might be like for them to kind of be swimming in the midst of this lie. And the one that came to mind was this idea of information overload. We live in a world right now where, like, every year, I think the stat is we have access, like, at our fingertips to, like, double the amount of information. It's kind of absurd. And I don't know if you've experienced this like I have, but there's times where I know I can go online, I can search something and find an affirmation to my opinion, whatever it is, whether it's right or wrong, right? And maybe you've felt this, where you get to this point where you're just so overwhelmed with info that you don't even know what to believe anymore. That You're just like, who, who cares about whether it's right or whether it's wrong? And I think that's what's going on in these Jewish individuals right here. Between their cultural moment, between their, their identity, uh, that their, their pride that they have in Abraham as their father, between this spiritual darkness that is going on and between the words that Jesus is throwing at them, I don't think they know what to believe. I think they are so caught up in this And the brokenness in them is causing them to reject Jesus. And so what he's saying to them is, although you are from a line of God's people that he chose and that he loved and that he's committed to, you and an individual are rejecting him and you are alienating yourselves from him. I want us to hear the severity of Jesus' diagnosis in that. Like, it's not easy what he says. Whenever Jesus shows up in Jerusalem, guys, it's never easy, usually, what he says to the people he's in conversations with. And what he's telling them is this. He says it's not just that you're, like, related, relatedly God's people, relationally. Like, you still kind of have a relationship with him, but you're kind of struggling over here. Like, you can still claim the fame of, uh, uh, of being a, a part of his family, but maybe you're just having a bad day. That's not what he says. He says, in fact, you're not his people. You do not belong to him. And and, and you're you're rejecting the truth. And in fact, Satan is the one who is your father. And that rejection of Jesus is proving it. Now, this is not a condemnation of all Jews. I I think that we should point that out. This is what I would call an intra-family dialogue within the Jewish community. When we read these, these condemnations, it's, it's not Jesus throwing a stone across the aisle. This is like Jesus throwing a grenade into his own row. Maybe that's a good way to, to think of this. Jesus is trying to snap them out of their hard-heartedness. But I want us to sit with this idea that Jesus paints, that our rebellious responses to God actually reveal our allegiance. And there's times when we need to take a good, long, hard look at ourselves not to question whether we're saved or not, but to look at the state of our spiritual walk. Because when we get in those moments of silence, when we we look at ourselves, when we look at who God has called us to be, and, and we feel the guilt that we've fallen short, that is God's gift to us. That is God's gift that he is still working in us by his spirit, drawing us to where he wants us to be. So I think we need to ask ourselves, does my pattern of life reveal the allegiance to God that I claim it to have? And we need to think seriously about this because it's scary. There's this dynamic that Jesus paints where we can get to the point where we are so uh, unaware of what God's doing, where where we, where we push God away, that we can become deaf to the truth. And the result of becoming deaf to the truth is that we become enslaved to sin and then we become more deaf to the truth. It's this vicious cycle that he has Uh, that, that Jesus is pointing out that he wants to liberate us from. So he paints a really drastic and awful situation for these Jewish individuals so that he can show them the good news. And that's where he's gonna move us from this diagnosis of what's going on to the prognosis of what will happen if Jesus does not intervene. And this is where he starts to press into his identity and what he has come to do. We see that Jesus is the Lord who has come to set us free from death itself. Let's finish chapter eight, starting in verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets who died, who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. He went out of the temple. So they're less than thrilled at Jesus condemning words, as we would be, right? This is not easy stuff for us to hear. And so they fire off some shots. They call him a Samaritan. If you remember when we were in John 4, we pressed into the fact that Samaritans and Jewish people had quite a bit of conflict. But what we didn't get into is that kind of based on that bias, Jews viewed Samaritans as being kind of more prone to being demon-possessed. And so what, what they say here, are, is it not true that you're a Samaritan and that you have a demon? And Jesus says neither of those is true. And, and actually, they know it's not true because they say our father Abraham later on. So they know he's Jewish, right? So they're just throwing stones at him. And he says, neither of those things you say is true, but what is true is this, that not only does clinging to me prove you to be my disciples, but accepting my word, holding fast to my message is actually the thing that liberates you from your enslavement to sin. It liberates you from sin's consequence, which is death itself. Now, Jesus is not saying we need to obey his words more and and therefore earn this right to be liberated from death. That's not what he's getting at. It's this extension of him. He's saying you need to hold fast to me, to everything I'm claiming about myself and who I am. And so Jesus kind of shifts the argument. He's not only questioning their walk with the Lord. He's not only questioning this fact that they're claiming to be from this uh, biological lineage, but they're devoid of spiritual heritage, if you want to put it that way. He's not just questioning that. He is claiming now greatness beyond Abraham, and they pick up on it, and they say, what? What? Abraham died, the prophets died, these righteous people in our history, and you're the one claiming that you can liberate us from death? They died. Who do you think you are? And Jesus says, okay, well, if I tell you, if I glorify myself, it's not gonna have much weight. But here's the thing, the Father's in the process of glorifying me. The Father is revealing who I am. It's the Father that you do not know. In fact, Abraham looked forward to seeing me. He looked forward to my day. Now this is probably Jesus talking not just about one event in Abraham's day, but kind of this looking forward of Abraham to the promises that God was gonna fulfill, that he would one day be blessed to be a blessing that comes to a pinnacle in the person and work of Jesus, and so what, what Jesus is saying is that Abraham, in looking forward to that promise being fulfilled, was actually looking to that promise being fulfilled in me, and they say, you're not even 50. Let's keep track that Abraham is 1,500 to 2,000 years prior to this, okay? So they're saying, you're not even 50. How is, how, how is this going on? How, how have you seen Abraham? How has Abraham seen you and looked forward to your day? And listen what Jesus says, it's extremely strategic. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, we've seen Jesus making these I am statements all throughout uh, the Gospel of John, and he's gonna continue to do it. And we've kind of alluded to what's going on here, but I I wanna give us a little bit of depth for a moment on why they're so offended by it. Eric, would you go to the next slide? Okay, so I want us to keep this in mind real quick is that in Jesus' day, the Jewish community uh, did speak Hebrew and Aramaic, but there's something, that re- something super significant that happened like 300, 400 years prior to this. And it was that there's a man that showed up by the name of Alexander the Great, and he conquered the entire world. And the result of him conquering the entire known world at the time was that almost everybody in that known world spoke not Hebrew, not Latin, but Greek. He did what we would call Hellenize the world. And so this was true even of the Jewish community with the exception of some that were kind of in the Jerusalem area, okay? So Greek was the primary language even of uh, the Jewish community, especially broadly. And so what did they do with their Hebrew scriptures is they translated them into Greek, into what we call the Septuagint, okay? Okay. So on the left side, there you go, left side is, I'm trying to figure out where all these screens are, on the left side is Exodus 3.14. Many of us are familiar with this text. This is where uh, Moses and God are going back and forth in the burning bush, and, and God says, I'm going to send you, Moses, to my people, and Moses has all these qualms, and this is what he says, if I go to the Israelites, who do I tell them you are? And God says, we, we're, many of us are familiar with this, I am who I am. Okay, now that's a specific phrase in Hebrew, but in Greek, what it got translated into is what I have highlighted there on the left. It's a phrase called ego, I mean. Ego, I mean, I am, okay? Now, in John's text here, in chapter eight, here's what Jesus says to them. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, not I was, he's not claiming to be old, he says before Abraham was, ego, I mean okay, they pick up on it super fast, that he's not claiming to be a super old person who knows Abraham. He was claiming to be God. His point to them was that by rejecting him, they're not just rejecting some rabbi that God had sent. His point to them is by rejecting him, they are rejecting the Lord Himself. They're rejecting the one who had come to rescue him. They're rejecting the one that they are claiming to find their source from. And so what do they do? They pick up stones to stone him. This is the typical uh, kind of mob violence, first century thing that you do. You stone somebody. It's actually prescribed in Moses' law. And what's ironic about this is it was God who prescribed that stoning for blasphemy. And now they're trying to stone God. Do you see the irony of how far they have come from who the Lord wants them to be? So they're not just offended at his words. They're upset now at who he's claiming as far as his identity. And this is where we need to recognize that Jesus' diagnosis, depending on who we deem him to be, is either very offensive or something we need to come to grips with. See, if Jesus is not God incarnate who has come to rescue us, then what he's saying is pretty harsh. What he's saying is something that I would say we should probably reject. This idea that we're slaves to sin with certain death ahead of us and and that Jesus being the hinge upon which escape is possible. He would be mad to say something like that if he wasn't who he's claiming to be. But if he is God incarnate, if he is the ego I me, as the text says, then this is serious. Then there is a response to be had. You see, this text presents to them and to us this kind of personal challenge. I think that can be summarized in this way that our earthly associations are not the determining factor of our spiritual condition. Let me say that again our earthly associations are not the determining factor of our spiritual condition. That means that apart from our family's faith heritage, Apart from our friend circles, apart from our personal achievements, apart from our possessions, we are individually on our own, isolated, without anything else around us, responsible for how we respond to Jesus. We cannot derive merit. We cannot derive comfort from others' relationship to God. I think about you know, people that derive comfort from saying, "My parents, right? We're a Christian. Jesus says, "That doesn't work." right? That's the whole conversation about that Abraham is their father. Right? You cannot derive merit from others' relationship to God because those around you in your circles are, seem to be following God. You can't derive any sense of your relationship to him from that. We cannot assume relationship to God based on comfort and achievement in life. We have to separate ourselves from those. Some of those things are really good gifts that we have, but they do not make or break our relationship with the Lord, and we have to be honest with where we stand with regard to Jesus' claims today. The difficulty of all of this is that we do not possess in and of ourselves the qualification for spiritual flourishing. Jesus says, I've come to bring you life. I've come to bring you life in abundance. That is not something that we can muster up. Even in our best efforts, even in the most moving worship times here at Park. I love the worship we have here, right? But that's a response to what God is doing not something we're doing in order to earn standing with God. In fact, the scriptures tell us that our situation is very dire. Just as Jesus has been saying, that we fall into these patterns where we hurt ourselves, where we hurt one another, where we reject what God wants for us, and it introduces brokenness into our world that I think that we all can observe. And yet this truth that our earthly associations are not the determining factor of our spiritual condition, this truth that poses a problem for us on one level is actually our greatest source of hope when Jesus enters the equation. Because if Jesus is the very same God who we've offended, who has come to rescue us from our brokenness, then that means that regardless of our our relationship to other people, good or bad, they cannot separate us from the love of Jesus. That means that apart from our our friend circles, regardless if they accept us or reject us, they cannot separate us from the love of Jesus. Regardless of what we've achieved or not, it cannot separate us from the love of Jesus. Regardless of our family's history or not, they cannot separate us from the fact that through faith in Jesus, we are brought into God's family. You see, Jesus is very clear that he is the hinge upon which our spiritual life either thrives or dies. And he invites us to life today. He invites us to a love that surpasses all understanding. And even though he's being harsh, even though he's being really difficult in this chapter that we're looking at today, we have to recognize that he is on a mission in this chapter, that he is walking in perfect righteousness, not so that he can condemn us, as the text says, but so that he can save us, so that he can give that righteous life for us on a cross so that he can die in our place so that we can have that righteousness and so that he can rise again so that as we trust in him, that the spirit can come into us and make us, as it says, a part of God's household, sons and daughters of the father. And what's beautiful about this is the giving of the spirit does not just change our status. It changes in some sense our our power because what it says is that as the spirit empowers us, We are no longer slaves to sin. Now, we will still struggle with sin, this side of life, right? We we, we know it, for those of us who follow Jesus. Like, we're not perfect. We continue to kind of ride these waves up and down. But what the scriptures tell us is that the Spirit is bringing to completion the work that God first began. And so as we come to the table today, I want us to rejoice in this. I want to rejoice in the freedom found in Jesus, that we've been set free from sin that we've been set free from this need to prove ourselves, to associate ourselves with this person or this achievement or, or with Abraham or with Isaac or whoever it is. We do not need to prove ourselves through our associations to anyone other than Jesus. And what it says is he set us free from death itself. You see, as I said, we all have these stories we're living into and they inform who we are. And our story apart from Jesus is one of brokenness. It's actually one of tragedy, where God mourns these. As I said, we can hear Jesus' frustration as he's talking to these people here. But in Christ, we're invited into a new story, a story of life, a story of of redemption. And I want us to rejoice in the fact that because of that story, we are invited to partner with God on mission. We are invited to be his apprentices as we're partnering with him as he's making all things new as he sets us free and those around us as well. Let's take a minute to pray. And if you're a follower of Jesus today, I want to invite you to come to the table to remember Jesus giving his life on our behalf and that we have new life in him as we've been set free. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us so deeply that you have sent your son to both diagnose our condition of brokenness, but also to provide rescue, to set us free. Lord, I think about Passover and and, and the Israelites huddled up in their homes and awaiting the judgment of God that if the lamb's blood was wiped over their door, that God's judgment would pass over them and they would live. Lord, as we look to Jesus, the, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, help us to cling wholeheartedly to him and to nothing else so that death might pass over us so that we might know what it's like to live, not just in the life to come, but even now to experience your love in the present, a love that surpasses all understanding, a love that defines who we are as your people. Lord, continue to work in us and edify us as we come to the table now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.